Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Noah here. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about something new from the Deep Background team. Our Deep Bench miniseries explored how the Federalist Society became the most powerful legal organization in the country. My producer, Lydia Jean Cott, and I have now authored an audiobook about the rise of the Federalist Society and the forces that could fracture it. Takeover, how a conservative student club captured the Supreme Court, includes additional interviews and a new preface and afterward. The book will be published on February 23rd. But until then, Deep Background listeners can purchase Takeover only at pushkin.fm slash takeover. Take advantage of this exclusive sale for Deep Background listeners and download Takeover now at pushkin.fm slash takeover. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. An impeachment trial in the Senate is supposed to be one of the most rare revelatory events in American politics. But we've had two in the last year alone. What are the takeaways of this second Senate impeachment trial, and indeed of the whole phenomenon of impeachment, one that is speeding up with remarkable velocity? Here to discuss impeachment with me, the details of this trial, the comparison to the first one, and the long historical trajectory of impeachment from the founding into the future is Jacob Weisberg. Listeners will know Jacob as the CEO and co-founder of Pushkin Industries, the company that produces this show. What you might not know is that the way I ended up having a podcast of any kind at all, not to mention one on Pushkin, goes back to conversations that Jacob and I began to have in the early days of the Trump presidency. Back as early as the fall of 2017, Jacob and I co-authored an article in the New York Review of Books, which laid out the case for impeachment against Trump 
based on the conduct that he had already committed at that point and based on the underlying constitutional principles of what count as high crimes and misdemeanors under the Constitution. That article was the beginning for me of delving very deeply into the question of the constitutional status of impeachment. That and subsequent research and writing were the reasons that I ended up getting called to testify before the House in the first impeachment process against Donald Trump. Jacob, welcome back to Deep Background. Jacob, let me ask you some specific concrete questions about what you expected in this second impeachment trial and and what happened. First of all, did you have any different expectations the second time from the first time, or did you figure the fix was in the second time just as it had been the first time? I think people overestimate the inevitability. If you told me at the beginning there will be seven Senate Republicans who will make an independent decision and vote for impeachment, I would have been surprised that there would be that many. But I don't think that was completely inevitable. I think a slightly different dynamic, including possibly, you know, more evidence about Trump's knowledge on January 6th could have provoked a different outcome. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think this was a 100% foregone conclusion? I sort of think that it was. I mean, for me, the, the alternative scenario is more like, what if a congressman had been killed or congresswoman had been killed on January 6th? You know, would that have changed the result? Had it been a Democratic congressman or congresswoman, would that have brought to a different result? If it had been a Republican, would it have been a different result? What if Mike Pence had been badly beaten by the crowd, but managed somehow to escape? Would that have produced a different result? Based on the facts that we saw going in, I didn't see a way that McConnell could take a different stance than he did, mostly because, you know, as we all, lest we, lest we be confused about the fact that McConnell despises Trump, which is clear from his speech about Trump, McConnell has also facilitated Trump in a serious way for the last four years. So, you know, the, the accommodationism to me indicated that there was no real way for McConnell to realign where he would, where he would choose to, to realign. So I was not surprised by the outcome. I do think it could have been different if the violence had come out in some different way. By the way, similarly, if the Capitol Police or the Washington, D.C. Police or some combination had defended the Capitol in such a way that no one had breached the perimeter of the Capitol— even if they had tried, I don't think Trump would have been impeached. Even if the crowd had made the same, he had made the identical speech and the crowd had made the same efforts, but had been you know, held off, I don't think we would have seen an impeachment. I think the impeachment happened because of the penetration of the Capitol. And that actually leads me to ask you a question, Jacob, which is, do you think the case was stronger in the second impeachment than in the first impeachment? I mean, they got more Republicans in both in the House and the Senate than the first time. Do you think that's because the case was stronger or do you think it was because Trump was less powerful because he was out of office and had lost the election? It's funny. I think that both impeachments, it could have been one impeachment because both of them were about the same thing. They were about trying to steal an election. The, The first one was about trying to cheat before the election. And the second one was about um, trying to reverse the results of the election. They reflected Trump's democratic dishonesty and his politically corrupt ambitions. And in that sense, they were utterly valid. I mean, if there is anything that impeachment is about, it's trying to steal an election. I mean, it's hard to imagine something that a crime that is more political in nature, something to me that more explicitly meets the constitutional understanding of a high crime. Look, I totally agree with what you said. I think they were about the same thing. I have to say, I don't think that that was made clear by the 
managers in the second impeachment at all. I think the first impeachment focused on something that Trump had done but had failed to do. And the weakness of the case there was that the allegation was that he tried to do something, namely, you know, get the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, and he had failed. So his strongest defense in the real world was something like, oh, come on, nothing happened. And the second time it was something that Trump had done in the sense that he gave the speech and then the Capitol was breached. But the problem was that he didn't do it. And so therefore, they, he had to be accused of, of incitement, which is by its just structural nature. Incitement is the idea that I suggested that you do something and then you did it. So there's always some intervening cause, namely what you've done in an incitement trial. And that enabled Trump to back away and say, hey, or through his lawyers, I didn't actually do this. So in each case, he had some defense available to him. So I agree they were about the same thing, but I don't think they played out that way in the mind of the public. Hmm. I mean, I'm thinking with with this impeachment, particularly about the context of his call to the Georgia Secretary of State and saying, find me 11,000 votes. Um, I mean, there is a context beginning on election night of Trump rejecting the results and trying to find a way to reverse them. And in that context, the January 6th speech sounds totally different. I agree with you. If there hadn't been violence at the Capitol, you know, if they hadn't breached the Capitol, it would have just read like another incendiary Trump speech and it would have been dismissible. But it was in context, the last effort that began on election day to find a way to reverse the result. I actually really wish that the articles of impeachment had not been for incitement to violence but had been articles of impeachment specifically saying, you know, Donald J. Trump tried to subvert democracy itself, first by denying the legitimacy of the election in the run-up, then by falsely claiming after the fact that the election results were rigged when that was not true and it was clearly false, and then ultimately by, you know, call it a second or a third article of impeachment, by inciting the violence. My guess about why the Democrats didn't do that, and it's just a guess, is that they were worried that if they made the denial of the legitimacy of the elections into an impeachable offense, they wouldn't get any Republican votes because so many Republicans were publicly on the record as saying that the election results were rigged. And on the contrary, no one in Congress was willing to say openly that it was a good thing to invade the Capitol. And so I think they guessed, this is just you know reconstructing, that they would do better in terms of the votes if they just restricted the charge to incitement and then added that other stuff in the course of the background section. And, you know, they were probably right about that. I'm not disputing their political judgment. They're politicians. They do that for a living. I just really wish that the impeachment hadn't been only about incitement in some formal sense, but had formally been about the idea that it is impeachable offense to lose the election and then walk around saying that there was massive fraud and you didn't lose the election when there is no evidence for that and you're lying. Yeah, I mean, they went with the visceral charge. They went with the, he sent a mob here to kill us. You would think, looking around the Senate chamber, that the people who escaped that (laughs) attempt, escaped that riot with their lives, but in many cases were, were, you know, really threatened and really in jeopardy, would say, yeah, we do have to draw a line somewhere. And I'm going to draw the line at the, the head of the executive branch trying to have members of the legislative branch and his own vice president murdered or harmed. 
if that doesn't do it, nothing really is going to. I mean, if that doesn't, if that's not a convincing enough charge, even if legally, I mean, I, I, I take your point and I agree. And I would have certainly had a charge related to his overall effort to subvert democracy, sub, subvert the election. But honestly, if trying to kill us isn't going to do it, nothing else is. So I think it could be argued that actually the impeachments weren't futile, even though the fix was in and neither was going to result in either removing the president or banning him from office in the future. Because impeachment remains the strongest tool that Congress has to take a stand and to condemn the president. And it goes in the history books insofar as it hasn't been used all that frequently. That might change if it gets to be used all the time, which maybe we'll talk about later. But for now, it remains an outlying thing. And so if the point of impeachment was not ultimately in practice to remove Trump, it was probably then to send a message to the world that we, the House Democrats, are drawing a red line in the basic practice of democratic government. And we're saying in our constitutional government, there's certain things you cannot do without consequence. I, I fully agree with that, Noah. I mean, I think it still was a semi-successful exercise in accountability for that reason. Trump's offenses were aired. The public learned more about them. Some views of Trump changed at the margin among persuadable Republicans in the electorate. You know, the answer to the question, should Trump run for office again? The number of Republicans who say yes to that actually diminished in a statistically meaningful way pre and post impeachment. So in all those ways, it was valuable. And also the fear that it would be a distraction for the new president and would get him off his game in relation to his agenda. I don't think that's borne out. So I don't I don't see negative consequences, except to the extent that impeachment is becoming common. I think the fact that we have had uh, three in the past 25 years, we had one in the 19th century, and we've had four in my lifetime. The likely scenario is we have more. It's a, it's a more available political tool. And because it's been carried through without ultimate consequence, I think this very strong temptation for Republicans is going to be if they regain power in, in the House to figure out somebody to impeach, kind of because they can. I don't think it's too soon to start asking ourselves one of the big aftermath questions, which is, was all that talk about impeachment in which you and I were implicated, was it a good idea? I mean, did we cheapen the idea of impeachment in such a way that it made it harder to get these impeachments through? Did we acclimate people to the idea? Or was there, in fact, something good about starting to talk about impeachment as soon as we did? Well, it, it is a good question. In a way, both impeachments, the combined impeachments, were a kind of study in futility. So, you know, it's hard to say, it's hard to feel good about how they came out. The other thing I just reread sort of briefly today in preparation for talking to you was Federalist 65, um, which is the key Federalist piece by Hamilton on impeachment. And what's amazing about that, and I really kind of urge people to read it, I feel like it anticipates exactly what went wrong with impeachment. In it, Hamilton basically says, here's the problem. The tendency 
politicians are going to have to take ideological positions, side with parties, exercise their relative power, and not use their individual judgment as people about whether an offense is impeachable. And it's like, if you read that right now, it's a precise description of what happened in the Senate. I mean, I think of what the all but seven Republican senators did. But in a way, you could argue what Democrats did, too. I mean, I think the Democrats were right, of course, in in voting to convict. But I don't know that there was a lot of independent individual judgment there as opposed to following party discipline. Hamilton does write there about how the senators ought to exercise independent judgment. And he's pretty optimistic about how they will do so. And obviously, in part, that reflects the framers' naivete about what political parties would actually do in real life. Hamilton himself went on to found a political party, the Federalists. His collaborator on the Federalist Papers, Madison, went on to found the other political party on the other side, the Republicans, the Democratic Republicans. So they went from being close collaborators and friends in producing the Federalist Papers to being brutal political enemies. And because they didn't anticipate the rise of political parties, they underestimated how partisan the impeachment process would be. That said, Hamilton himself, you know, in the Federalist Papers, was trying to be a propagandist. He was trying to get people to make the Constitution be ratified. And so he depicted the probabilities that people would act selflessly in ways that seemed to me knowingly on his part overstated. Given how deeply Hamilton was worried about the danger of demagogues, a danger he speaks about in the Federalist Papers, he must have known that there was a real, real possibility of politicians demagoguing an impeachment. So when he makes those arguments and acknowledges the counterarguments, it may be, this is reading him against the grain, it may be that he's actually aware that impeachment may not be that effective a tool in the long run, but for the purposes of his polemical purpose is saying, oh, this is going to work great. That's very interesting. No, I mean, I think the place where I'd be a little skeptical of that defense of of Hamilton's full foresight of the problem is around political parties. The the founders, including Hamilton, Madison, I mean, I feel funny talking to the biographer of Madison about this because, you know, you forgot more about this today than I'll ever know. But, you know, they're always talking about faction, by which they mean political parties, which they think are this kind of corrupting factor in democratic government. And they were just wrong. I mean, I don't think, you know, their their democracies all seem to develop political parties as a fundamental feature. And they thought we could do without them. And not only could we do without them, that we wouldn't have a healthy democracy unless we did without them. As you say, they both immediately founded political parties themselves. It was just a kind of fundamental misreading. But I think if you read something like the Federalist 65, it's shot through with this idea of individuals making decisions without fundamental reference to being part of political parties. You're totally right. And I guess what I'm saying, and I'm making this up as I go, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. Madison, I know, did believe those things. It was totally sincere on his part. And the failure to anticipate political parties was based on his intellectual I would even say hubris at that moment, which is that he thought he'd designed a constitution that would fix the problem of political parties. Hamilton, however, was not a naive person, ever. There was nothing naive about Hamilton. And although he's talking the Madisonian language in the Federalist Papers, including in 65, 
What I'm speculating about is that maybe Hamilton didn't believe it as much as Madison definitely did believe it, even when Hamilton was saying it. So I, I wonder if he wasn't already anticipating something like that and already thinking that there probably would be political parties, even as he joined these documents declaring that they designed a constitution that would fix the problem of political parties. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let me ask you about something else I've been thinking about, which is whether there was a fundamental failure on the part of the founders in thinking about transitions, presidential leadership transitions, because two things that they did not include in the Constitution were any kind of term limits for the head of government. And I think in the um, impeachment trial, what Jamie Raskin characterized so effectively as this January problem, which Mitch McConnell ended up taking advantage of by saying, no, we, we won't impeach him while he's still in office. And then it, once he waits till he's out of office, he believes that there's this loophole, which I don't think is supported by uh, constitutional history. Um, however, there is a lack of clear procedure uh, and lack of anticipation about this really particular problem that, that seems to arise almost everywhere in the world all the time, which is leaders not wanting to leave office, including when they lose free and fair elections. You know, it may be that those things are related to each other. I mean, the framers didn't have term limits because they didn't think that the president was going to step down after only a few terms. Hamilton basically wanted an elected monarchy, and he wanted Washington to be the first elected monarch. And it was only when Washington did step down after two terms that this tradition emerged, only subsequently broken by FDR and then subsequently put into a constitutional amendment. So the fact that they didn't have term limits wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a bug for them. It was a feature. They wanted a strong executive and those of them who, including Hamilton, who really wanted something that looked more like a monarchic presidency, appreciated that fact. And they weren't that worried about the transitions problem I think insofar as they were they had Washington in mind, they figured he'd always be reelected. And they figured that people who were not elected would step down. And that did happen, right? Adams, right out of the box, you know, the second president loses an election to Jefferson and he does step down. Another part of it, I think, was that they had an image of what a gentleman of the late 18th century cared most about, and that was his reputation. And they knew that loss of reputation could be ruinous and doing the kinds of things that Donald Trump did would have been reputation destroying. I mean, these were people who fought and in Hamilton's case died for their reputation. I mean, people who will fight a duel are people who really value reputation above everything else, including possibly, you know, life and limb. So I think that might be why they were not as worried about people refusing to step down. Well, is it fair to say that while they were uh, obsessed, fully focused on the problem of demagogues in politics, they didn't fully anticipate the narrower problem of what do you do when you've got the demagogue in office and you're trying to transition away from, you're trying to get the demagogue to yield. I mean, that is the problem we ran into with Donald Trump. The fox was in the hen house. The demagogue was elected president in a flukish way, but legitimately. And like a demagogue, tried as hard as he possibly could not to yield power. And I think historians may look back on this period and think, we came a lot closer than we ever anticipated coming to not having a successful democratic transition in the 2020 election. We'll be right back. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. 
If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. 
That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I think your point, Jacob, about the framers not really thinking about what to do if a demagogue did get elected is profound. And I think pretty original. Because um, they thought a lot about how to keep him out of office, but not a lot about what to do once he was in office. I think there's a separate question of how close we were. And it's one worth exploring, I think. Had the Defense Department had officials who were prepared to listen to Trump and deploy troops in his defense of his attempt to gain power, that would have been an actual coup d'etat, not a, you know, ragtag mob invading the Capitol, which was a kind of a fantasy of a coup d'etat rather than the reality of it. And I, I think it's an interesting question of how close we came to that. You know, the fact that it turns out that there was someone in the Department of Justice, a mid-level official, but nevertheless, an official in the Department of Justice who went to Trump and said, make me attorney general and I will order Georgia to retract its electoral college votes is pretty astonishing. And if something like that had happened in the Defense Department, that really could have led you in a coup-like direction. So in that sense, I think history will bear out your point that it could have gone worse. At the same time, it didn't happen in those ways, despite the fact that we had Donald Trump. And so that could be a potential, potential argument on the, other, on the other side. Yeah, I think it's, it's sort of like talking about nuclear war. The minuscule chance becomes an intolerable chance. And, you know, I don't know when I say how close we came. Was it a 5% chance? Was it a 1% chance? A 1% chance of the collapse of constitutional democracy is way too high a chance, as you're saying. I mean, maybe what stood between Trump and trying a real coup d'etat was that he wouldn't have had support from the markets and he wouldn't have had support from the business community. The markets don't seem to have thought at any point that there was a meaningful risk of a coup d'etat or the breakdown of constitutional democracy. And to me, that has to reflect... I mean, it's always hard to say what the markets, you know, mean when they do something. But when the markets don't do anything out of the ordinary, you can at least say that they're not desperately panicked that we're about to have a civil war or war in the streets. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be really interesting to see in retrospect. I wanted to go back, Jacob, to the um, point you raised about impeachments getting more common. And I, I'm wondering why you think that is. Is it that we have more partisanship? Is it that we have more transparency about what government does than we used to have. What's what's your view? Why do you think these are more frequent now? I mean, I think, you know, polarization is a bit of a tautology, right? In a more polarized political environment, you get more impeachments and you get more impeachments because you have more polarization. One thing I might focus on is norms, political norms starting to fall away earlier than we're focused on. We're very focused on Donald Trump's attack on all sorts of political norms, which is very true. But I think in the 90s, there were a lot of things that had been norms in politics, including around the justification for impeachment, that kind of melted away without a ton of notice. And if you want to figure out when things really started to break down in Congress, I think it was the Gingrich election of 1994. Republicans retook the House by a very big margin two years after Bill Clinton was elected. And Newt Gingrich was committed to leading the Republicans in a very different style than they'd been led for many, many decades. And essentially, he declared an end to any cooperation 
an idea that politics really was war in the sense that anything that passed was going to be of political benefit to the Democrats because they controlled the White House. And essentially that the goal of the party that wasn't in the White House was obstruction. That provoked a certain amount of Democratic retaliation. But I think impeaching Bill Clinton for, you know, what might have been abhorrent personal behavior, but was, I think, still by any constitutional de definition, not political crime, not high crimes and misdemeanors, um, started to break down those norms. Can I ask a further follow-up question about that Gingrich moment in 1994? Do you think that partly what you're describing is the first time in modern American history that the Republican Party had people in its senior leadership positions who were overtly populist? I mean, there, there, you know, there was George Wallace, but he was an insurgent candidate who didn't ultimately make it nationally. You know, there had been Pat Buchanan, but also had not made it to the very senior most ranks of, of Republican leadership. Nixon didn't have the personality to be a, a populist. I wonder if the Gingrich model of Republican populism contributed to the emergence of the breakdown of norms precisely because it was populist. And, you know, there have been democratic populists for many, many years, but, you know, most political systems have one side that's the populist party and the other side's not necessarily the populist party. Here you suddenly had both sides importing some degree of populism. And populists like to break the rules, right? Populists always say the rules of normal politics are rules designed to serve the interests of the rich and the powerful. So let's, you know, burn it all down. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very insightful. I mean, Republicans hadn't had a real populist moment since McCarthyism. I mean, I think McCarthyism was a form of right wing populism, but in the long period between the the early fifties and the nineties, populism was more associated with Southern segregationists. I th I do think what Gingrich was trying to do certainly had the tonality of populism, but it's sort of com populism combined with obstruction as an alternative to compromise and legislation. I mean, there's a fundamental question about whether the job of a member of Congress is to pass legislation. Gingrich came in and said, nope, our job is to stop all of it. There is no version of a health care bill that Republicans could ever support. That would just be good for Democrats. It's more government. Block everything. Um, and that's what they did. And I think that that was the kind of change in the rules of the game um, that probably led to the Clinton impeachment. And I speak as someone who thinks both impeachments of Trump were, were justified. So I don't I don't take the position that that was illegitimate Democratic retaliation. But if Republicans hadn't impeached Bill Clinton, do I think that there would have been two impeachments against Donald Trump? Maybe not. I think emerging from what you're saying is maybe the beginnings of a collaborative hypothesis here about the rise of impeachments. And it might run something like this. If you have populist parties on both sides and they do the obstruction, which is one of the things that populists are prepared to do because the populist doesn't just want to pass legislation that's popular, but wants to block the other side from usurping the, the people's will, then you get a higher probability of impeachment because impeachment itself, in some way, is the ultimate form of obstruction, right? So, you know, Bill Clinton's supporters said when he was impeached, 
listen, the Republicans are just doing this to block him from being president, from doing what he wants to do. It's just an obstructionist technique. And similarly, Donald Trump supporters said that. They said, you know, these impeachment efforts, especially the first one, were just intended to interfere with his agenda as president. And I think what you're saying is maybe there is something to that in the sense that obstruction is connected to polarization and impeachment is a form of obstruction, sort of the ultimate form of obstruction. And that also explains, by the way, why Joe Biden seems so eager to get the current, the third impeachment over quickly, because he doesn't want the idea of impeachment anywhere in the story. He just wants to get on with his legislative agenda. I mean, this is a very um, interesting hypothesis that would explain why we have more impeachments, but also would explain why that's not the end of the world. You know, it would explain that politics evolves. And in a moment where you have a lot of partisan populism, you need tools to express that. And maybe one of those tools is impeachment. And maybe we get more impeachment efforts going forward as a consequence. And maybe that's fine. I think we probably will. And it, it, it does mean to some extent that the currency is devalued. The more common it is, the less, you know, historically aberrant it is. I mean, I remember I was... 10 years old when Nixon was impeached, and I was I was really into it. I was riveted. But part of the excitement was this is something that's never happened before in anybody's lifetime. It had been 1868. There was no living person who could tell you how impeachment worked. And there are all these books, you know, that came out, and all these scholars had to kind of figure out impeachment for a new century. It's becoming a lot more familiar. People who in 1974 had no idea how an impeachment actually happened now know exactly how it goes because we've been doing it a lot. I wonder if impeachments, though, could actually be less upsetting to all of us if we come to see them as basically the strongest thing that Congress can do to condemn a president rather than as a process of a quasi-judicial nature with a verdict that might actually lead to an outcome. You know, I mean, we have a tendency, and the media has a tendency, too, to think about stories as legal dramas. And it's hard to have a legal drama if you know already what the outcome is going to be. And so in some sense, these impeachments weren't that dramatic because we knew what was going to happen at the end of them. But if we get outside of that framework and say, okay, we are going to have more impeachments, but it's going to be reserved for situations where Congress wants to express its highest form of sanction for a president, that might be good enough. And it might even take us retrospectively back to the Clinton situation when we both agree that what Clinton did wasn't a high crime or misdemeanor under the Constitution. But on the other hand, he did lie under oath, having had an affair with a 20-something-year-old secretary in the White House. You know, two very, very bad things. And, you know, bad in different ways from one another. And I think in that sense, the idea that Congress felt it had to say something to say that this conduct is not okay doesn't actually seem so outrageous in retrospect. Yeah, but fundamentally, in, in a democracy, you, you make decisions in an election and you have to live with those decisions until the next election. And at the state level, many states have what I think was originally a kind of progressive era reform of recall. And so as soon as the governor is elected, in some states, including often in California, people are trying to get petitioning to get recall on the ballot. And so you're in a constant state of argument basically about the legitimacy 
of a, an elected official and the question of whether an elected official is going to serve out his term. I think that's basically not productive most of the time. There are obviously situations um, where there are corrupt officials, officials who abuse power, officials who deserve to be recalled before their, their term is over. But you can't be having a version of the election all the time. And I think you've got to reserve these removal tools, impeachment being the ultimate one, um, for the for the rare cases, because otherwise, you know, again, it's it's politics as warfare all of the time. But you're not saying that impeachment has to be reserved for situations where it will work. No, I'm saying it has to be reserved for situations in which it's justified, in which what we're talking about is a high crime in the political sense that it is something like what we've just been through with Donald Trump and not like what we went through with Bill Clinton, where objection to politics and some personal misbehavior or scandal is kind of cobbled together as an argument for for removal from office. Just to close on a personal note, um, I think the first time I was ever on a podcast was when I was on your Trump cast uh, talking about impeachment and related issues. And at the time, um, you hadn't started Pushkin, and I hadn't dreamt of being on the other side of the microphone for a, for a podcast. So this show definitely would not exist were it not for the question of the impeachment of Donald Trump. I can't exactly thank Donald Trump for that, but I want to thank you for uh, this conversation and for the previous conversations that we had. They have had a transformative effect on my life, very literally. Well, Noah, the, the one part of impeachment I can really endorse is uh, talking to you about it. It was the part of impeachment I really enjoyed. So I'm sorry that conversation is going to end now, at least for a while. But uh, I'm sure we'll find some other things to talk about. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you, Noah. It was a huge pleasure to talk to Jacob, as it always is. For me, the key takeaways have to do with Jacob's central insight into the idea that impeachments are getting more and more frequent. None until the middle of the 19th century from the time of the founding, then a possible impeachment of Richard Nixon, so bad from Nixon's perspective that he resigned before he could actually be impeached. And then in rapid succession, Bill Clinton's impeachment at the end of his presidency, and not one, but two impeachments of Donald Trump. Jacob thinks this means we're going to have a lot more impeachment going forward. And what's more, he sees this as intimately connected to the rise of partisanship and polarization in our politics. If Jacob's right, we're going to have more, not less, impeachment. A second important takeaway is to ask ourselves, is that necessarily a bad thing? My own view of impeachment trials after the experience of these two is that we would be making a mistake if we conceptualize those trials primarily in terms of their success or failure in punishing the president by removing him from office or by banning him from running again. The process is simply too tied up in politics for that to be the necessary outcome to justify the means. To me, impeachment today stands for the opportunity that Congress has to insist that it will state once and for the record that certain conduct by the president is entirely unacceptable and that if he does so, Congress must take action of impeachment or else send the message to the ages that the president's conduct was normal or acceptable. To me, Donald Trump's conduct, both the first time he was impeached and the second time, clearly passed that bar. 
As Jacob mentioned in our conversation, Trump's impeachments both followed from the same course of conduct. He was trying to break the 2020 Democratic election. Will Donald Trump ultimately be criminally prosecuted for this or other conduct? It remains possible, but relatively unlikely. Already, Georgia law enforcement is investigating Trump's call to the Secretary of State where he asked him to find or directed him to find 11,000 more votes, potentially threatening him with criminal prosecution if he did not. That might lead to a prosecution, but my guess is that the legal issues will be too close for the case to be brought to a jury. In a criminal trial, a prosecutor would have to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt two different things. First, that Donald Trump's words were directed to the incitement of violence, which probably means in practice that it would have to be shown that he intended to incite violence and or that his words literally were an incitement to violence. The second component would be to prove that Trump's words were actually likely to incite political violence. The latter would be quite easy to prove because after all, after Donald Trump spoke, there was indeed a violent riot. But the former would be very difficult to prove because Donald Trump was characteristically canny. He did not use words that literally called for the use of violence, and it would not be simple to prove that he intended for that violence to occur. Ultimately then, it seems most probable to me that the jury for determining Donald Trump's culpability for the events of January 6th will be that most evanescent and yet most significant of juries, the jury of history. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.